Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your host, Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Welcome back, everyone, to Happy Half Hour with Toby and Nick, a lighthearted, informal look at markets and other nonsensical topics. So, Toby, happy 2024. We're going to jump right in. I'm going to ask you the first question. Is that okay? Yeah, that works great. Happy New Year to you as well. Are there any insults or things you want to throw my way before I get started? No, I prefer to save them for later in the podcast. Okay. First question is awful. Why, why are the Blazers so bad, and do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, the Blazers are bad because they don't have enough professional NBA players. They have a few NBA players and a lot of young guys that are developing. So I, I'm optimistic. I think we've seen some things from Scoot that give us uh, optimism for the coming years. We'll probably end up trading a couple of guys, and but it's a rebuild like this in from what I've learned is not a one-year process. It's going to be a rough couple of years. And maybe in three years, we'll pop our head up and be a playoff team and, and go from there. But it's at times, it's hard to watch. If Scoot takes one more pull-up jump shot like he's Steph Curry, I might pull my hair out. Like that, that guy's misses are like nuclear missiles off the backboard, and they're unreboundable, if that's a word. Like you can't tip that in. It's flying off like a nuke and careening out of bounds. No, but if he gets going downhill and is he if he's coming at you with the ball, I don't think there's a lot of players in the league that can stay in front of him. But you're right, he does the defense a favor when he pulls up for a jumper, especially a three-pointer, because he's just not efficient with that shot as of yet. Okay. All right. Second question. Second question. I'm coming in hot today. What is it about gold, the asset class, that you like so much? Uh, I think it's the fact that it's been money for 5,000 years. And if you look back at, at time, we're just devaluing the dollar year over year over year. That's why when we were kids, our parents would say, oh, I remember when a candy was a nickel. Yeah, you know, I'd go to the store with a, a quarter and I'd buy some candy and bread and all that. And today, you know, you buy a candy bar, it's a two or two fifty proposition so gold Mm -hmm. holds its value it's been around forever it's not the most exciting investment and i certainly wouldn't advocate for you know having the bulk of your portfolio in it but i like having a portion of the portfolio in it for those elements and if we do get higher inflation moving forward i think gold will will uh, do better in that environment as well but i just like having it in my portfolio i've owned it for 20 years one of my former bosses told me when I was 20-something that a ounce of gold bought a new suit in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it buys a new suit today. And that's always stuck with me. I think stories are powerful. And that, and he was a completely checked out human being, but that is a, a sound piece of advice. And then when you look at the benefits of gold in a multi-asset class portfolio, it does improve the risk and return profile, meaning you can 
generate a similar return as a 60-40 portfolio, let's say, but with less risk. And with all the geopolitical issues, like people say that 2024 is the year of the geopolitical crisis or uncertainty, I think there's a strong case to have a asset class like gold that acts differently than traditional stocks and bonds. Yeah, and I, I would add that gold, from my perspective, fits into our thinking from the standpoint of we don't know always why the market is going to go up. We just know over time, historically, the market has moved higher. And gold fits in that because anybody that tells you they know where gold's going in the next 6, 12, 24 months is making, is making things up. But from my perspective, over the next 5, 10, 15 years, I would expect gold to be higher because of the debasement of, of the currency that has continued since 1971. So I have one comment on gold, and then I'll draw a parallel between the gold ETF and the Bitcoin ETF, because I think a lot of these narratives um, are similar. And and the one bone I have to pick with gold is sometimes it has a mind of its own, where the setup can be perfect for gold, you know, inflation, uncertainty, geopolitical risk, and it'll crater. And then the opposite is true. The thesis is terrible for gold. Rates are going up. Inflation is going down. And gold will ascend higher. So gold has a mind of its own. And then take the, taking that a step further, gold miners, silver. I mean, that's like gold, uncertainty, schizophrenia on crack cocaine. No disagreement here. If, <laughs> if people say, hey, why is gold going up? I can give you some talking points. But in reality, gold's going up because gold wants to go up. And there will be times it'll go the other way. And, and it's hard to make sense of it. That's why I think it's a... Part of the portfolio, you own it, and you don't try to trade in and out of it. And over time, it'll provide the non-correlated benefits that you described. But let's yeah, and I, turn the tables. Go ahead. Okay. Oh, I so I just wanted to let our listeners know that I, I actually wrote a blog, not so much about gold, but on the principles of a multi-asset class portfolio, that something is always not going to be working. And I think sometimes investors look at their eight or nine asset classes in which they own, and they look at the one or two or three that are underperforming and say, that doesn't really make sense to own. But I would push back that things not working is a, is a function of a truly diversified portfolio. That's not a bug in the system. That's supposed to happen. If everything is moving up and down together, I would argue that's not a diversified portfolio, and you're probably taking more risk than you set out to. So. Uh, for those uh, Sunday Coffee Reads followers and for those that read our blog, that is on our website right now, and, and our clients and potential clients will get that in their newsletter on Sunday morning. Well, and to your point, gold over the last couple of years, which has been a really volatile time for the stock market, 2022 was a big down year, 2023 was a bounce back year. Over that two-year period, gold has been the best performing assets, up 12% over the last couple of years. So. You never quite know when it's going to perform, but it does act as a buffer in many uh, market uh, environments as it has over the last couple of years. So I'm going to turn the table on you. Um, there's been a lot of news this week and over the last couple of months about Bitcoin and getting an ETF approved. Um, so talk a little bit about uh, that uh, change that occurred yesterday and how you're thinking about Bitcoin and whether it has a place in diversified portfolios. 
This has been a long time coming. And for those that know me, I've been an investor. I've been interested in cryptocurrency and digital assets uh, for about a decade now. And I've long stated that it's only a matter of time before digital assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, are part of a mainstream asset allocation. And for those that don't understand Bitcoin, know that, it's, that it can be confusing, but it's essentially, I mean, I think about it in, in a number of ways, but it's essentially a bet against the, against the legacy financial system. And you talked about the debasement of the dollar and the dollar losing value and fiat currencies. And you look at governments, the dysfunction, the fiscal recklessness, the monetary policy experiments. I think Bitcoin is a hedge against all that because there's only 21 million coins no one controls it. It's on a decentralized blockchain, blockchain, and I don't want to get into the nuance of, of it all, but no one can print more of it. A bureaucrat, a bureaucrat can't screw it up. If you want to transfer money to your cousin in Africa, it happens in seconds. No one's charging you a fee to, to access your money like a traditional bank. So it's just a, it's, it's been compared to gold in that it's the modern digital gold. It's uncorrelated to traditional asset classes like stocks and bonds. Now, the one counter to that is as institutional investors have access to a Bitcoin ETF, that could make it more correlated to stocks and bonds. But it's certainly a win for those that have been torchbearers for champions of digital assets. It really legitimizes the space. And it's very similar to what happened with gold back in 2004. So for those folks that don't know, Gold faced a similar headwind from the SEC back in 2004. It took many years, many, many lobbyists, $10, $10 million or so to get a gold ETF approved and publicly traded. And it's, it's not going to happen all at once, but I think slowly folks are going to see Bitcoin as a legitimate asset class that is going to be a staple of mainstream investment portfolios. And kind of the why, – why the ETF is such a big deal, because before an ETF, it was very hard to buy Bitcoin. It was very confusing to buy Bitcoin. You had to go on an exchange. You had to uh, store it in a wallet. You were potentially exposed to fraud and phishing scams and hacked. A lot of these exchanges were doing not-so-good practices in the background. So there was all sorts of barriers to entry to buy Bitcoin. Now, all that is washed away. You'll be able to log on to Schwab or uh, any, major, uh, any major exchange and buy it like you would any other ETF today. And what, uh, so those are some of the, the definite positives and advantages of Bitcoin. What are some of the concerns and risks that you see having been an investor over the last you know, three, four, six years? Probably the biggest one, it's a highly polarizing and volatile asset. Like you can't buy Bitcoin unless you are fully prepared to lose 80%. And I think that's that's not not an not an exaggeration. If you look at the range of outcomes over Bitcoin over the last 10 years, that's well within the range of outcomes and that can make people highly uncomfortable. So, if you're going to own Bitcoin, which I don't know if I can say that that peer portfolios um, is planning to announce our our approach to potentially accessing Bitcoin. But if you're gonna own Bitcoin, you better be mindful of position sizing. And it shouldn't be 
over X percent of your overall portfolio value. Again, it's a highly speculative, emerging new asset classes, uh, new asset class, and there's going to be bumps in the road. It's not just buy Bitcoin and enjoy 40% gains every year. Uh, so we have a segment we do on the podcast uh, each time where we take a specific investor group and you weigh in on you know, what they should be thinking about, what they should be focused on in their uh, wealth journey. So today, the group that I'd like to have you weigh in on is young adults in their mid-20s. These are people mm. that maybe maybe they got out of college, they've got a good job, they're starting to make a little bit of money. Uh, I happen to have two and a half kids in that in that realm. So what advice would you give to them as they get started in their career? They might think, hey, retirement plans? Retirement is 40 years away. I don't need to worry about that. But what advice would you give those folks as they get started in their in their journey? Perhaps I'm not the most qualified because I'm 42 or almost 42. Um, and of course, we have several 20-something advisors at Pure. But I think the, the playbook uh, is so simple, you might think I'm an idiot, where I think a 20-something should create a budget, right? Like you have to understand what's coming in and what's going out. Max out your savings without sacrificing your lifestyle or experiences. So, it, like, in my opinion, it's it's a sin to forego a memorable trip in your 20s or to forego a memorable experience because you have a budget and you want to save as much as you can. So you need to find a balance between living your life. I mean, that's a time where you're probably single. You know, you have freedom. It's a great time to take risk and experiment. Don't short yourself on experiences because you're listening to Dave Ramsey and you want to max out your 401k and IRA and your friends are going and you're not going to go. So don't, so don't do that. The other thing I'll say, it's a great time to take risk, right? If, if you take a risk in your 20s and it pays off, you have 60 to 70 years to enjoy the fruits of that payoff, right? If you wait until you're 60, you hit a home run or hit a 100xer, you have a much shorter time horizon to enjoy the fruits of that success. On the flip side, if you crash and burn at 20, you have a lot of time to make that up. So don't be afraid to throw a Hail Mary, to take risks, to join a startup, start your own business. That's what your 20s are for, to throw stuff to the wall and see what sticks. Okay. That's... And then the other part of it is focus on maximizing your earnings. Like there's so much talk about you shouldn't go to Starbucks because $5 invested every every day is a million dollars over the course of 40 years. Oh, 40 years. All of that is BS. Okay. Focus on the big things, get the big things right and focus on maximizing your earnings. Your biggest asset in your twenties is your human capital, your future earning capacity. Max that sucker out. Yeah. And I think, I think that's great advice. And what I really appreciate is you can really keep it simple, which is start to put some money away. I think every client I talk to wishes they had started sooner in saving money. Mm -hmm. And because it just gives you more time for that money to compound. To your point, it almost doesn't matter what they invested in, as long as they're getting used to the habit of putting in right. three, five, seven, eight, ten percent of their paycheck, put it in some sort of a savings, and you'll look back on it 10, 15, 20 years from now and and be glad you did. So just getting started with that, even if you keep it simple, is really going to be powerful. 
Well, and if you start early, it becomes part of your part of your identity, right? If you save money one year, then you're a guy who saved money for one year. If you save money for five straight years, you can identify as a saver. And, and I think that's the type of positive inertia that you want to create when you're young, because that really does snowball. And and getting ten percent on ten thousand dollars might might feel okay. Getting ten percent on one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, completely different ball game. Yep, and just establishing those habits is is mm -hmm. huge. I I remember when I was in that uh, at age time frame, and once you just got used to putting money away, you didn't miss the money. Right. You know, if you put a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, whatever away. It was just over there and it was working for you and you didn't miss it. But if you never started, it was kind of hard to get off, uh, get off the dime and get, get going. So good advice there. Um, I'm going to step back for a second. And, and now that we're in the new year coming off what turned out to be a, a really uh, positive year for most financial markets, you know, how do you approach the new year? What are you thinking about in the new year? I, I get questions sometimes and and the the thought is you know hey this year i'm you know maybe we'll end up beating the market this year or maybe last year we were able to beat the market how do you think about 2024 but how do you also think about the concept of beating the market i think people mistake what financial advisors actually do and sometimes it feels like when talking about performance people ask us or people act like they've asked us to beat the market. And that's that's really not what we do. Most of our clients, I'd say 80% of them are retired or about to retire. And a lot of them own gold and bonds and cash. And if you wanna compare your 20% your US large cap sleeve to the S&P and, and see how you did, that's, that's completely fine. But to take a, a portfolio that has 50% bonds and real estate and gold and some cash and small cap stocks and emerging market stocks and try to compare it to the S&P, I think that's just a misunderstanding of how all this works. And what, what most people really need is to generate reasonable returns while being mindful of risk. We can all agree most retirees don't want to take a 40% a drawdown or a 50 or a 50% drawdown like uh, the 2007 to 2008 crisis. So our whole investment approach is designed to lop off that extreme downside event and to mitigate downside risk because we want people to live to fight another day, right? Gone are the days for most people that are retired of trying to maximize returns. You've put your flag in the ground. You found you're enough. It's a completely different mindset than what you had in your career, where you were risk seeking, you were reaching for return, you were you were taking on debt. Completely different mindset shift. So I think a lot of it comes down to expectations, and part of our financial planning process is modeling a conservative rate of return. Right? If if your plan is favorable, and I'm just throwing numbers out there, if your plan is favorable at a three percent annualized return or even a 0% return, meaning you, you don't need any rate of return from the market and your plan still works, meaning you can do everything that you want to do and you're not going to run out of money. That's a damn empowering place to come from. Okay. Of course, that's not what we're trying to do to generate a 0% return. But if, if, that's, if that's your position, you can pretty much build any type of portfolio 
and and make a, a rational case for it. An aggressive portfolio might be, hey, I'm not investing for me. I've got more than enough. I've got 13 grandkids that, that I'd like to put through college. You could make an, a case for an aggressive portfolio. On the flip side, hey, I'm, I'm really not comfortable with what's going on. Let's, let's buy some treasuries. Let's be conservative. That's fine, too. You have more than enough. So I think people need to, to rein in their expectation or at least understand their expectations and understand the game that they're playing. And a lot of times it's that subtle mindset shift between maximizing returns, mid-career, reaching for return, and that downshift, being content with what you have, shunning risk, being patient, being prudent, and realizing that, that your nest egg needs to last for the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah, I think we it's important that we help people maximize the amount of time in the market. And the way that we do that is we manage the risk component of the portfolio so that they will stay in the market when things get challenging. So that the drawdown, if the market pulls back 20, 30, 40%, their, their pullback is gonna be less than that. And that will allow them to stay the course and stay in the market and we'll end up with There'll be years like we had last year where few people predicted it, but last year was a very strong year uh, in the market. And we, our job is to make sure people uh, capture that upside. And then to your point, when the market goes the other way, as it inevitably will at some point, we want to minimize the downside and minimize the hole uh, that we dig in those in those difficult periods. So um, I think that's well said, and and I think. That's our job is not necessarily to beat the market, but to help people meet their goals by being in the market and doing it in a risk appropriate manner. Well, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it, a perfect example of all of this is 2022 going into 2023. I mean, if you look at, and I'm kind of a sicko, I read all these notes, but if you look at what people were saying, how people were feeling, the media cycle at the end of 22, what Wall Street was predicting about 2023, almost everybody thought things would continue to get worse going from 22 to 23, all right? It's, it's actually not uncommon for good years to be preceded by bad years, meaning a bad year happens in markets. It's not uncommon. It's not weird at all for the next year to be positive. And I pointed that out in a blog post uh, titled Silver Linings in a Dismal Year. And I went back and looked at like the last 30 bear markets, down 20% markets, and what happened the following year. And something like 80 something percent of the following year was positive. Now, if I say that I come off as aloof and maybe even an idiot because I'm, I'm basically shunning all the risks out there, but folks don't understand markets wanna go up. Like part of my market commentary that that I just wrote was the frequency of positive returns or the frequency of S&P returns over the last 80 years. And I would encourage you to check that out because it's skewed to the right, meaning the market tends to want to go up. And it breaks down as the market goes up about 75% of the time. Okay. The other 20% of the time it goes down, like zero, 0 to 15%. 5% of the time things get really weird. So down over 15%. But by looking at that, folks are folks should be surprised that all the doom and gloom and predictions of a market crash, it actually happens more seldom than you would think. Again, I'm not saying that it can't happen. It certainly does happen. But those large gains happen more often than people think. And what we're trying to do is just get people 
to stay on the rails and center themselves. It's really easy to find things that could go wrong. It's uh, less in human nature to find things that could go right because progress is often hard to see, happens very slowly. It's not on the front page of the news, but uh, bad things are thrown in our face. They're on the front page of the news. If something bad happens in Africa, we're going to find out about it in 10 minutes. So it's just a, it's just the modern uh, challenge of a digital aged investor, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And and I'm struck by, since I got into this business full-time about eight years ago, how much price drives sentiment. Mm -hmm. So to your point, at the end of 22, everybody was beaten down. Markets were down 20% or more. And I think people looked at 2023 and couldn't envision a scenario where the market went up. And now, after a strong year in 2023, I think people are are bullish, are feeling great, and, and are struggling to understand how the market could go backwards. And and our approach is just trying to not predict the future. We don't know where the market's going to go, but have a framework and a methodology that if the market moves higher, we're going to capture as much of that as possible. And if the market goes the other way, if we have a reversal in 2024 or 2025, we're going to take steps and have a framework to get people out of harm's way. So. Um, Good, good uh, feedback there. Well, I'm a big fan of behavioral finance. Like I'm a big fan of understanding how people are feeling and then making like I'm not saying that 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 pure does this is certainly a component of 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 what we do. But someone could have made a lot of money just by taking the temperature of what people were saying, what people were were, were feeling and trading off of that. And over 100 years of market data, when feel when people feel the worst, Future returns are really quite good. When people feel like making money is easy and investing is easy, future returns are quite poor. And at the end of 2022, one could argue that investor sentiment, consumer sentiment, the news cycle was all doom and gloom. And from that point, markets basically raced higher. And there's an inherent belief amongst investors. When, when markets are going higher, you're you're getting a lot of people, a lot of clients saying, oh, now, now's a great time to be invested. Like think back in the fall or winter of 2021, where JPEGs of monkeys were trading for a million dollars. Cryptocurrency, digital land, all this crap was trading through the roof. People thought investing was easy. They were throwing money at garbage and seeing it go up by three, four, five X. That was the most risky time to be invested, okay? Think back to the end of 2022, sentiment in the dumps, everything has gone down. In my opinion, that was the least risky time to be invested because, again, empirical evidence would suggest when people feel the worst, future returns are quite good. And when you zoom out, and all of this is easy in hindsight, but when you zoom out and look back, I, I mean, you could have set your watch to that. Okay, I've got one more question for you. Do you want to go first or you want me to fire this last question at you? It's a, it's a doozy. Go ahead and fire the question, and then you'll you'll answer the question, and then we'll quit talking, or I'll quit talking. Are you a seasons guy? We're pred predicted to get some snow this weekend. Is that an exciting thing for you to do that with your kids and deal with the snow, or is it just a, a pain in the neck, and you're, you'd rather have sunshine 325 days out of the year? Man, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I could do snow for a day, maybe two days. I mean, I live on a big hill. When it snows, I'm in my house. I, can't, I literally cannot escape. Our, the, the road to our house closes, 
you know, the counter to that is the kids have a nice hill they can they can sled down. All the neighborhood kids come in front of our house, and it's fun for them. Um, so I do like seasons, but like with everything, I think we need to have uh, balance. Like I, I would not do well with the month of snow. Um, I like to play golf. Uh, I can't golf when it's snowy out, uh, when it's 45 degrees and there's not snow or rain. I still play golf, but I'm almost 42. My body does not fire like it used to, so I have trouble turning and generating speed. So, so to answer your question, I don't mind snow, but when I'm done working, when I'm older, I will not be in the Northwest in the month of January or February. I'll be in somewhere sunny where I can, where I can play and not feel uh, like the Tin Man after a round of golf. How about you? Yeah, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you in on a little secret. The the body not responding well to cold weather uh, doesn't get better. It gets it gets a whole lot worse as you get older. But uh, I think I would see it the same way you do. I I love snow. I love the seasons. I love experiencing that with my kids. My kids are a little older now, so we'll see see how that plays out. But as I get older, maybe this is just perfectly natural. I do like the fact that. There are places you can go and wake up and you know the sun's likely going to be out and it's going to be warm mm-hmm. and you don't have to worry about 45 degree rain, gray, dark, gloomy <laughs> in, uh, you know, January, February timeframe. So I, I share that with you that uh, I do like to see the sunshine on a fairly regular basis. That all sounds good. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for joining us for Happy Half Hour with Toby and Nick. If you have any feedback, insults, a topic you'd like us to talk about, shoot us a note at insight at pureportfolios.com. We'll see you next time. 